0: told in the storm from the crimson gardenia and other tales of adventure by rex beach this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by dale Grothman. told in the storm by rex beach the front room of the roadhouse was deserted save for the slumbering bartender back tilted in the corner his chin upon his chest and one other man who sat in the glare of a swing lamp playing solitaire it was perhaps three hours after midnight the last carouser had turned in there was no sound save the screaming of the black night and the cry of the salt wind at intervals only when the storm lulled there came from the back room the sound of many men asleep I stumbled out from the rear room, heavy-eyed, half-clad, and of a vicious temper, dressing in sour silence beside the stove. Did they wake you up? the card-player inquired. Yes. Me, too. I'd rather bunk with a herd of walrus in the mating season. He was a long, slim man, with blue-black hair, and a gas-bleached face of startling pallor from which glinted two wild and roving eyes that flitted in and out of my visual line toward to and past me with a baffling elusive glimmer like that of jet-spangles his hands were slender and bony and colorless but while he talked they worked each independently they performed queer wizard antics with the cards one-handed cuts rapid fluttering shuffles and frame-ups after each pass leaving the pile of pasteboards as square-edged and even as before while he observed me over his shoulder one hand wandered to some scattered poker chips which clicked together beneath his touch into a solid ivory column as if separately magnetized he shuffled and dealt and cut the discs and made them do odd capers like the cards i've slept in a menagerie tent once he said but these people have got it on the animals he nodded toward the sleeping quarters the open life seems to make a pans pipe out of the human nose i said with disgust my indignation was intense and underlaid with a sullen fury at losing my rest i seized the stranger and led him with me to the open door saying roughly listen to that the room was large and low dimly lit and walled with tiers of canvas-bottomed standees three high the floor was littered with boots the benches piled with garments every bed was full and the place groaned with sounds of strangulation asphyxiation and other disagreeable demises the bunks were peopled with tortured bodies which seemed to cry of throttlings garrotings and sundry hideous punishments my nervous system unable to stand it had risen a quiver then shrieked for mercy from the nearest sleeper came the most unhappy sounds he snored at free and easy intervals with the voice of a whistling buoy in a groundswell a handsome resonant intake that died away reluctantly then changed to a loathsome gurgle as if he blew his breath through a tube into a pot of thick liquid now and then he smacked his lips and ground his teeth until the goose flesh arose on my neck. "'That's the fellow that drove me out,' said my new acquaintance, as we went back to our seats beside the stove. "'I had the berth below him. I sleep light, anyhow, since I woke up one night down on the Texas panhandle and found a Chinaman a straddle brisket with a butcher knife. "'That must have been nice,' I said at random. "'What did you do?' I doubled up my legs and kicked him into the campfire. The stranger was dealing cards again, this time into a fan-like, intricate solitaire, much affected by gamblers. I tried the trick again tonight, but I went wrong. I went to stop the swan-song of the guy above my head, so I lifted my feet and put him where the canvas sagged lowest. Then I stretched my legs like a Jap juggler, but I fetched away my own bunk and came down on the man below. I broke a snore short off in him he'll never get it out unless he has it pulled that was us you heard two hours ago I was too tired and sleepy to talk for I had come down from the hills of previous afternoon to find the equinoxal raging and as a result the roadhouse full from floor to ridgepole with the motley crew that had sifted out from the interior the coastwise craft were hugging the leaves of the sandy island waiting for the blow to abate telephone wires were down and the bearings water had piled up in the south until they flooded the endless sloughs and tide flats from solomon city destroyed the ferries and cut us off both east and west by land and by sea it were better i had thought to wait on the coast for a day or so watching for a chance to dodge to nome than to return to the mines so i had lugged my war bag into anderson's place and made a formal demand for shelter the proprietor had apologized as he assigned me a bunk it's the best i got he said i put you alongside of the stove so if the boys snore too loud you can heave a coal at them them big lumps are better than your boots i had tried both fuel and footgear fruitlessly and when my outraged ears would not permit further slumber I had given up the attempt. Now, while the blue-haired man with insomnia dealt idiot's delight, I sat vaguely fascinated by the plays of his hands, half dozing under the drone of his voice. The wind rioted without, whipping the sea-spray across the sand-dunes until it rattled upon our walls like shot. Meanwhile my companion adventured aimlessly, his strange and vagrant fancies called for no answer his odd and morbid journeyings matched well with the whimpering night his stories were without beginning and they lacked an end they commenced without reason led through infrequented paths then closed with no cause through them ran no thread of relevancy they were neither cogent nor cohesive their incidents took shape and tumbled forth irrelated and inconsequent. Wherefore I knew them for the truth, and found myself ere long, wide-eyed and still, my brain as keen as ever nature made it. The story of the dead Frenchman has seemed strained and gruesome to me since, but that night the storm made it real, and the stranger's unsmiling earnestness robbed it of offense. His words told me a tale of which he had no thought, and painted pictures quite apart from those he had in mind. His very frame of mind, his pagan superstition, his frank irreverent philosophy disclosed queer glimpses of this land where morals are of the fourth dimension, where life is a gamble and death a joke. Whether he really believed all that he said or whether he made sport of me, I do not know. It may be that the elfin voices of the storm roused in him an impulse to gratify his distorted sense of humor at my expense or at his own he began somewhat as follows it's a good night for a dead man to walk then seeing the flicker in my eyes he ran on you don't think they can do it eh? well I didn't believe it neither and I'm not sure I believe it now but I've seen queer things queer things and I've only got one pair to draw to either they happened as I saw them or I'm crazy he leapt up his story boldly. I'm pretty tired and hungry when I hit Council City late one fall, for I'd upset my rowboat, lost my outfit, and mushed it 150 miles. My whole digestive paraphernalia is in a state of innocuous destitude, if you know what that is, because all I save from the wreck is a flour sack full of cigarette papers and a package of chocolate pills about the size of a matchhead each one of these pellets is warranted to contain sufficient nourishment to last the german army for one month i read it on the label they may have had it in them i don't know i swallowed one every morning and then filled up on reindeer moss till i felt like the leaping pad in a circus now when i reach camp i find there ain't any fresh grub to speak of but i can't get away so i stuck on till spring See, in time we begin to have scurvy something terrible. One man out of every five cashes in. I'm living in a cabin with a lot of Frenchmen, and we bury seven from this one shack. Seven. That's all. It gets on my nerves, finally. I don't like dead men. Now the last two who fall sick is old man Maynard and my pal Pete Defoe. Pete has a ten-dollar gold piece, and Maynard owns a dog. Inasmuch as they both knew that they couldn't weather it out till the break-up, Pete bets his ten dollars against the dog that he'll die before Maynard. Well, this was something new in the sporting life, and we began to string our bets pretty free. There ain't much excitement going on, so the boys visit the cabin every day, look over the entries, then go outside and make book. I opened up a Paris Mutual. The old man is a seven-to-one favorite at the start, because he has all the best of it in form. But the youngster puts up a grand race. For three weeks they see-saw back and forth. First one looks like the winner, then the other. It's as pretty running as I ever see. Then Pete lets out a wonderful burst of speed, zings over the last quarter, noses out Maynard at the wire, and brings home the money. He dies at 3 a.m., and wins by four hours i cop eighty four dollars six pairs of suspenders a keg of wire nails and a frying pan which constitutes all the circulating medium of the camp i'm the stakeholder for the late deceased also so i find myself the administrator of Maynor's dog and the ten dollars that pete put up now seeing that it had been a killing finish we arranged for a double-barreled burial And a swell funeral the ground is frozen of course but we dig two holes through the gravel till we break a pick point and decide to let it go at that the bareheaded kid is clergyman because he has a square cut coat that buttons up the front to his chin there ain't any bible in camp so he reads some recipes out of a baking powder cookbook after which deaf mike tries to play taps on a coronet but he's held the horn in his mitt during the services and the temperature being forty degrees below zero when he wets his lips to play they stick to the mouthpiece and crab the hymn as a whole it was an enjoyable affair however and the best conducted funeral of the winter everybody has a good time though nothing rough now i've been friendly to young pete defore him and i bunk together and the next night he comes to me And says he can't rest i see him as plain as i see you what's wrong i said are you cold no the ground is chilly but it ain't that maynard the old hellion won't let me sleep he's doing a sand jig on my grave he said i won that bet crooked and died ahead of time just to get his dog he's sore on you too what's he sore on me for says i "'He says he's an old man and he'd have died first "'if you hadn't put in with me to double-cross him. "'He's laying for you,' said Pete. "'Well, I'm pretty sick myself, "'with a four-months' diet of pea-soup and oatmeal, "'and when I wake up I think it's a dream.' "'But the next night Pete is back again, "'complaining worse than ever. "'It seems that the ghost of old man Maynard "'is still bucking-winging it on Pete's coffin.' and he begs me to come down and call the old reprobate off so he can get some rest he comes back the third night and the fourth and the fifth and by and by Maynard himself comes up to the cabin and begins to abuse me he said he wants his dog back but naturally I can't give it to him it gets so that I can't sleep at all finally when Pete ain't sitting on my bunk Maynard is calling me names and gritting his teeth at me i begin to fall off in weight like a jockey in a sweat bath it gets so i have to sit up all night in a chair and make the fellers prod me in the stomach with a stick whenever i doze off i tell you stranger it is worse than horrible i don't know how i made it through till spring well in the early summer i got a letter from the steamboat agent at nome saying maynard's people out in the states Have slipped him some coin with instructions to send the old man out so they can give him a decent burial. He offers me one fifty to bring him down to the coast. Now, this decent burial talk makes me sore, for I staged the obsequies myself, and they were in perfect form. It was one of the tastiest funerals I ever mixed with. However, I'm broke, so I agree to deliver what is left of Maynard at the mouth of the river and the agent says he'll have a first-class coffin shipped down to the Trader in Chinook, our landing. When I deliver Maynard, ready for shipment, I get my hundred and fifty. I give you my word I ain't tickled pink with this undertaking. I'm not strong on body-snatching, and I have a hunch that the shade of old Maynard is still hanging around somewhere. However, a bird in the hand is the noblest work of God, and I need that role. So I made ready. It takes me half a day to get drunk enough to want to do the job, and when I get drunk enough to want to do it, I'm so drunk I can't. Then I have to sober up and begin all over again. The minute I get sober enough to do the trick, I realize I ain't drunk enough to stand the strain. I jockey that way for quite a spell, till I finally strike an average, being considerably scared and reckless to the same extent. I remember that we planted the old man in the left-hand grave, but when I get to the graveyard, I can't recollect whether I stood at the foot or at the head of the hole during the services. A pint of that mining camp's hooch would box the compass for any man, so I think I'll make sure. I have brought along three tools, a pick, a shovel, and a bottle of rye. The ground is froze, so I use all of them. Naturally, I can't afford to get the wrong Frenchman, so I pry up the lid of the first box I uncover, and take a good rubber. Well, sir, it is a shock. Instead of rags and bones, like I'm expecting, there is old Maynard in statuary quo, so to speak. Froze? Maybe so. Anyway, he grins at me. That's what I said. He grins at me, and I take it on the lamb. Understand, I have no intentions of running away in fact i don't know i'm doing it until i fetch up back in the saloon it seems i just balanced my body on my legs and they did all the work well i'm pretty rattled so i blot up another pint of painkiller and finally the bartender goes back with me and helps load maynard into my peterborough i'm pretty wet by this time we get the box into the canoe all right but it's too big to fit under the seat so we place the foot of it on the bottom of the boat and rest the other end on a paddle laid across the gunnels. this sort of gives maynard the appearance of lounging back on an incline you see when i ripped up the boards to take a look i broke off a piece at a knot hole and that allows him a chance to look out with one eye he seems to approve of the position however so i get into the stern facing him and ask if he's ready he gives me the nod and i shove off just for company i take my grave digging tools along that is all but the pick and the shovel it was pretty near full when i started but i loose the cork and drink it up for safety i don't remember much about the first part of the trip except that i get awfully lonesome by and by i begin to sing oh the french are in the bay says sean von The French are in the bay, says Sean von Vogel. The French are in the bay. They'll be here without delay, but their colors will decay, says Sean von Vogel. I've got a mean singing voice when I'm sober, but when I'm kippered, it's positively insulting. It makes my passenger sore, and he shows it. Now, I'm not saying that Maynard wasn't as dead as a dried herring. He was past and gone, and he'd made his exit all right he'd moved out and his lease had expired but i saw that box move it shifted from side to side i quit singing my song fountain ran dry says i to myself i just neglected to lash you down mr maynard you didn't really turn over it was the motion of the boat then just to make sure i break forth into johnny crapod keeping my eye on the right lens of the old man where it shows through the broken board. This time there ain't a doubt of it. He lurches, box and all, clean out of plumb and nearly capsizes me. His one lamp blazes. Yes, sir, blazes. And I tries to get out of the range of it, but it follows me like a searchlight. I creeps forward to cover it with my coat, but the old frog-eater leans to starboard so far that I have to balance on the port gunwale to keep from going over. We begin to spin in the current. Maynard sees he has me buffaloed, and it pleases him. He wags his head at me and grins like he did when he came to me in my sleep. Well, sir, that eye enthralls me. It destroys my chain of thought. I feel the chills stealing into my marrow, and that one hundred and fifty dollars looks mighty small and insignificant. By and by I begin to figure it out this way. Says I— I'VE OUTRUN HIM ONCE TODAY, AND IF I CAN GET ashore, I'LL TRY IT AGAIN. BUT WHEN I TURN THE CANOE TOWARDS SHORE, MAYNARD HEELS OVER, TILL WE TAKE WATER. LIE STILL, YOU BLAME FOOL, SAYS I. IF YOU FEEL THAT WAY ABOUT IT, I'LL STAY WITH THE SHIP, OF COURSE. I CAN SEE THE CORNER OF HIS MOUTH CURL UP AT THAT, AND HE SLIDES BACK INTO POSITION. THEN I KNOW THAT HE'LL LET ME STICK AS LONG AS I DON'T TRY TO PULL OUT AND LEAVE HIM FLAT you really can't blame a corpse much under the circumstances however I can't swim so I try to square myself I make conversation of a polite and friendly nature and the old boy settles back to enjoy himself well this one-sided talk fest gets tiresome after a while I run out of topics so I tell him funny stories sometimes he likes em, and sometimes he most jumps out of the box sore say when i pull a wheeze that he don't like he makes it known quick and i sit clutching the gunnels with my hair on end while he rocks the boat like a demon when i get to the mouth of the river it's night i find a stiff breeze blowing and the bay covered with whitecaps so i try to convince maynard that we'd better camp but i know more than suggest it till i have to bail for dear life seeing that he's dead set to keep going I kiss myself good-bye and paddle out across the bay. How we ever made it, I don't know, but long about midnight we blow into Chinook, with me singing songs to my passenger and cracking Joe Miller's that came over in 76. I'm still pretty drunk. The trader tells me that the coffin hasn't come from Nome yet, but the steamer is due before morning, so I ask him to cash Maynard somewhere and wake me up when the boat comes. Then I go to the hay. I'm tuckered out. It seems that the coaster comes in a few hours later, but the trader is dealing a stud game and tells the purser to dump his freight on the beach. They do as ordered, then pull out. About about daylight the wind shifts and the tide rises and begins to wash the merchandise away. Two roughnecks get busy saving their outfit when what comes bobbing past on a wave but a handsome zinc-lined casket? The one from Nome. Hey, Bill, cop that box. It'll make a swell bathtub," said one. So the other pulls up his rubber boots, waves out, and brings it in. The trader hears that his goods are in danger, adjourns the game long enough to see about it. He hurries down to the beach, looks over his stuff, then inquires, "Where's my coffin?" "You ain't got no more coffin than a rabbit," says one of the miners. "Oh yes, I have. That's it right there." "'I guess not. That's my coffin. I copped it on the high seas, flotsam and jetsam,' says the roughneck. "'What's more, I'm going to use it for a cupboard, or a cozy corner. "'If you want it bad, pay me fifty dollars, salvage, and it's yours.' "'Naturally, the trader belched.' "'All right. If you don't want it, I'll use it myself,' said the miner. "'That's the first one I ever had, and I like it fine.' there's no telling when i'll get another said time ain't but a minute observed the trader unless you give me that freight there is some further dispute until the miner being a quick-tempered party reaches for his gat. after the smoke clears away it is found that he has made an error in judgment that the storekeeper is gifted as a prophet and that the roughneck is ready for his coffin now inasmuch as this had been a purely personal affair And the boys was anxious to reopen the stud game. They exonerated the traitor from all blame completely And he being ever anxious to maintain a reputation for fair dealing and just to show that there ain't no animus behind his action Gives the coffin to the man who claimed it What's more he helps to lay him out with his own hands Naturally this is considered conduct handsome enough for any country in an hour the man is buried and the poker game is open again the trader apologizes to the boys for the delay saying the box is mine all right and I'm sorry this play came up but the late lamented was so set on having that piece of bric-a-brac that it seems a shame not to give it to him at this point the narrator fell silent much to my surprise for throughout this weird recital I had sat spellbound forgetful of the hour the storm outside and the snoring men in the bunk-room. When he had gone thus far, he began with a bewildering change of topic. "'Did you ever hear how Sam Dawson cut the ears off a bank-dealer?' "'Hold on,' I said. "'What's the rest of this story? What became of Maynard?' "'Oh, he's still there yet, for all I know,' said the stranger, as he shuffled the cards. "'His folks wouldn't send no more money.' The steamboat agent at Nome had done his share, and the trader at Chinnick said he wasn't responsible. And you? Did you get your hundred and fifty dollars? No. You see, it was a COD shipment. I wake up along about noon, put my head under the pump, and then look up at the trader. He is still playing stud. Where's my casket? I said. I've got my dead man but I don't collect on him until he's crated an F.O.B. The trader has an ace in the hole and two kings in sight, so he says over his shoulder, I'm sorry, old man, but while you was asleep, a tenderfoot jumped your coffin. Now this Dawson Sam was a crooked bank dealer named. I think I'll go to bed, I said. The End of Told in the Storm by Rex Beat.